0: Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high-income earners come to learn wealth-building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth with your hosts, financial and wealth-building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie.
1: Welcome into today's episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name is Christian Allen, and I'm here with my co-host, Rodney the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, man? Hey, I'm doing great. So today, well, okay, first Rod, I got to tell you, uh, Mm -hmm. normally I don't like the snow, Mm -hmm. but I'm looking out my window and it's like so picturesque because it's just like the snow's falling calmly, it's white. So anyway, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. That's all I have to say.
2: All right. I like it. Are
1: you ready? You ready for Christmas? I
2: am not ready. I'm never ready. I shouldn't say never. I, because it, it's going to come it always has in the past right it That's always true. came mm-hmm. and uh and somehow you made it work one way or another yeah we'll, you, we'll get rid of it
1: yeah okay all right well maybe you need to take an afternoon off
2: and no don't take an after
1: take an yeah. evening off <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, we've lock done a lot. down
2: that stuff we've done a lot it just always seems like as as they get closer i'm like oh there was that you know couple of little odds and ends that you have to take care of at the last minute. So that doesn't matter how me. well I feel like I'm planning ahead of time. It just, that's just it just happens.
1: Okay. Well, we have 50 people coming 50 plus people come into our house on Saturday for our, uh, for my side of the family Christmas party. So that should be fun, man. man. Okay, okay. So that. speaking of reunions today, we had a reunion with a longtime friend, mentor, um, someone that we've always looked up to and appreciated. Jerry Borrowman. I started working with Jerry over 15 years ago. He was literally the first trainer that I ever had exposure to. And I can, without question, say he's still the best trainer I've ever been around. So absolutely, he he knows the advanced markets, which when we say advanced markets, that sounds a little bit vague, but basically it's um, when we get into more sophisticated type planning, right? That's when we call Jerry. When we need... When we need like really specific um, niche type specialties, Jerry's there to back us up.
2: yeah things like in business or estate planning or or those things where just having a life insurance policy can be important but but positioning it in the right way, doing it in the right, in, in all the different relationships and everything having them set up correctly, Jerry's the man. Jerry's the man. Okay. So the reason that we asked Jerry to be
1: on is because we've been thinking about succession strategy, strategies in general. Um, recently we've been taught, we talked about business valuations, both in our Tuesday Facebook lives and, um, and in the recent podcast. So like, this has been a conversation that we're trying to kind of delve into a little bit more because so many of the, so many of our clients and people who listen to our show, um, have a need or have, uh, what's the right word? They're they're in a position where this conversation is really important. In other words, maybe they have businesses, maybe they have partners, all of those things. And, and again, businesses can mean a lot of things, even if your business isn't um, a practice or a traditional, maybe it's real estate, maybe it's a mm-hmm. real estate portfolio. All of those things, here, here's the deal. The concept that we're talking about here applies across the board for anybody, particularly if you have, any type of partnership going on in your business structures, right? Okay. So that's, that's kind of the broad conversation. And today, Jerry is going to talk about it primarily from a life insurance perspective. Now, what does that mean? It just means that there's ways that you can transition out of a business, right? There's various ways that that can happen. We hit on some of those briefly, like private equity, um, and other ways, right? You could, you could, well, anyway, we could get into all of those, but today the focus is really going to be on how to utilize life insurance as a, a strategic way to position your company to be in a better position or basically to, to continue on past your death or past your partner's
2: death. So anyway, yeah.
1: that's really where we focused our time.
2: Cause, and usually when we talk about business succession or or selling the business, really, we're, th- we're thinking of it in terms of what happens if everybody lives to the point where now you're ready to retire to pass that on well what happens if any of those partners doesn't right they pass away or even disability other things like that would would, can fit into this but again we're focusing primarily on if one of them passes away then what that's what this conversation is all about
1: well and the other thing that was probably as eye-popping as anything else we talked about was the statistics just the statistics that suggest that uh, I think he said, if there's two partners, healthy partners, 35 year old healthy partners, statistically speaking, there's like a 27 percent chance that one of them dies before 65. Like, yeah. I would not have guessed that. I would have thought it was no. like a five percent chance, right? Yeah. Yeah but, yeah. but the the reasons for planning are a lot more practical than we probably we probably think, and a lot more prevalent than we probably mm-hmm.
2: think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay.
1: for sure. So before we get into the interview, Rod, can you, uh, give us a little, talk a little bit about Jerry's background and then we'll jump into our conversation with him.
2: Yeah. Jerry's been, let's say he's been around the block a, a while, right? So he started out with New York life. He spent a lot of time with beneficial life, which is a local, was a local, uh, Utah life insurance company. Um, recent, more recently with Penn mutual and, and the local agency, um, and, and what has he been doing? Well, a lot of what you talked about. A lot of training, a lot of working with agents in, in these advanced planning types of things. Let me just real quickly, because it, it's just so impressive, give him with all of his, uh, all the letters after his name, right? So it's Jerry Barrowman, MSFS. In other words, it's a master's of, of financial services. CLU, CHFC, CAP, LUTCF. The guy is very educated and is, does a very good job of of passing that knowledge on in understandable ways. Again, in the whole, today we're focused on on buy-sell agreements, but it's it's in estate planning. It's in business uh, agreements, keepers and all kinds of other different ways that that knowledge has come to be beneficial for us and a lot of other people in our shoes.
1: The best part is, Rod, Jerry, I know for a fact that he doesn't list all of his designations behind his name. <laughs> Gotcha. He got bored. He's like, okay, this is getting a little out of
2: control. Um, yeah.
1: yeah. Jerry's a super smart guy. So we're, we're always excited
2: to have him and a good friend. And so, and oh, go ahead. I have to say one more thing that, that doesn't address any of this, but if you Google Jerry Borrowman, you're actually not going to get this side of Jerry Borrowman first. What you're going to get first is his books. He's an author, a very prolific author. Um, and so if you went to jerrybarrowman.com for example, then you would see the abundance of books that he's written and so he's a great storyteller that's one of the things that makes him a good uh, educator and uh, we benefit from that today as well I
1: think he sold over a million copies well that was years ago that he had so who knows how many it is now Um, yeah Jerry's super smart and uh, you know really talented Rod, I was just thinking before we move into the interview just as a reminder um, if you want to talk if you want to learn about other type of succession strategies, right? We talked, we had the business valuation conversation, but if you go back to episode 50, Mm -hmm. you can um, hear our conversation about private equity uh, as it relates to business succession. So anyway, we're trying to hit on, you know, the various angles that we can think of that will be helpful for listeners as they get into these types of situations. So, okay, Rod, without further ado, let's get into our interview with uh, Jerry Barman. Hey, we are very excited to have with us Jerry Borrowman. Jerry's been a friend and a mentor for Rod and I for many years. In fact, I initially met Jerry, I guess it was 15, 16 years ago. He was a vice president with a company called Beneficial Life, and that's where I started my career. So we are incredibly excited and happy to have Jerry with us. Jerry, how are you?
3: I'm good. Thank you.
1: Okay. So today, the purpose for asking Jerry to come talk with us is to focus primarily on succession strategies. And um, Jerry, just for reference, most of our listeners are high income earners. Many of them are in the medical space, but really high income earners across the board. Many of them also are business owners. They own medical practices, they own law firms and so forth. And so uh, we thought it would be a good opportunity to talk a little bit about succession strategies and kind of what are the first off what are some of the opportunities and ideas that are out there and then we'll we'll kind of dive into some of your specific expertise expertise which is in how to utilize life insurance um, in conjunction with succession strategies so that's kind of the plan but we're going to do it a little different today Um, i'm going to give you the mic we're going to turn over the screen it's going to be more presentation format Um, But Rod and I will just jump in with questions and thoughts as we go. Does that sound okay?
3: That sounds great. So let me start out by saying that different businesses call for different strategies. For example, a professional corporation, as a general rule, cannot be inherited by a person's family because there's restrictions on ownership so that you're not having non-physicians making decisions Mm -hmm. for people who are providing medical advice. The same with an architect. You don't want a for-profit enterprise saying use a lighter-weight material. So, if you have a manufacturing firm or a software firm, which is where we've done a lot of business recently, those assets can be inherited by a family. Um, now, if you have a if you're a doctor and your son comes into business or your daughter, of course, you could pass that on. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into the basics of how. Uh, buy-sell agreements work and maybe why they're important. Okay. And I have oh, to cool. click about four different buttons here. And so the good news is, Jerry, while you're screen...
1: bringing... Oh, sorry. Yep, your screen's up. Okay. So Very good.
3: So here's my agenda for this small portion of the discussion. What is the purpose of a buy-sell agreement? What are the methods available to fund the buy-sell agreement? And what are the types of buy-sell agreements that business entities and business owners use? And you'll see that I sort of pre-filled the bottom one. There's three types, cross-purchase, entity repurchase, and then a cross-purchase using a life insurance partnership. The third bullet point that I just pointed to is relatively new in the planning world. I first heard it about 15 years ago. But just yesterday I was given a buy sell agreement drafted by a firm in a law firm in California that just had it perfect. So we'll probably spend more time there because it it matches up better than most with the way the businesses are really owned today. So with that little teaser, let's go ahead and get started. So if if Christian and I were in partnership with each other, the very basic of a buy-sell agreement is, is that if Christian passed away. I would have an obligation to buy out his share of the business and his family his estate would be obligated to sell it to me at a predetermined price based maybe on a formula to give it fair market value and the thought is is that while I'm happy being in partnership with Christian because we share uh, common knowledge of the work we're doing, I may not want to be in partnership with his, a spouse or his children because they don't have that same expertise so if i'm the one to die, christian would have the obligation to buy so generally a buy sell agreement is a cross purchase where we're going to buy each other out and if we have that agreement in place we can avoid conflicts and maybe litigation between deceased owners heirs and surviving owners we can avoid delays in the transition to a successor ownership and in the settlement of the deceased owner's estate, and perhaps most important, is we can avoid the potential loss of customers, uh, employees who become uncertain in the transition, and creditors who may want to call loans if they think that the business, in the absence of Christian, is is not going to succeed. Which is so definitely what the case. Accomplished with the buy sell agreement.
2: Christians out of the picture, then they would be, they would have good reason to be concerned. Sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: true. We would be in trouble. We would it be was really my Actually
2: thinking, but
1: um... <laughs> okay, Jerry. I have a quick thought on the quick question. So, what is the default? Let's say that nobody that that there's not anything done. Nobody makes any plans. Generally, like, what does that look like? What what's the kind of the downside if you just said? I'm just going to kind of do my thing and we'll see what happens.
3: I'm going to give you three scenarios and, and explain what happens in each of them. First of all, let's assume that we're in, we have a software company. And so it can be inherited by our heirs. And in the first one, we're 50, 50 owners. So uh, I die and we don't have a buy sell agreement in place. What's going to happen is my family will inherit my share of the business. So Christian will now be in partnership with Marcella and with our four children. If we have a will, it may just be Marcella because the will passes all the assets onto her. If I die what's called intestate, meaning I don't have a will or an estate plan, Marcella would get two thirds of my estate and my children would inherit one third. So in my specific case, let's suppose I died without a will, Christian would now have five new partners. It's a 50-50 partnership. And let's suppose that we have a million dollars of profit at the end of the year. That profit, if it's a, an LLC taxed as an S corporation or a partnership, will have to distribute 50% of taxation to Christian and 50% to my family. Well, my family's going to want money. And they're going to say we want you to make a cash distribution, both to cover the tax and to give us a return on our investment. Christian is going to say, you know, we really need to retain the money because we're just in the process of building a new building, and so, and so we put it up to a vote, and it's going to be a tied vote, uh-huh. isn't it? Yeah. Well, in a tied vote, you cannot take the action. So my family's put in a serious disadvantage because they can't force any action. Christian, meanwhile, has, has five people now who are angry with him. That's number one. Number two, let's suppose that I'm a 60% owner of the business, and Christian's a 40% owner of the business. It's the end of the year, we have the same million dollars of profit. And, and my family says, well, we want $600,000 divided between us. Christian says, we really need to retain some of this money because we have some big obligations coming up this year. We've got to replace three trucks. We've got to upgrade our base software and the licensing fees. And now we say, let's put it to a vote. And guess what's going to happen? And so we, my family, because of their inexperience and maybe because of their greed, could literally drive the business into bankruptcy. What often happens, or we're seeing lately is, so my family's looking at this as a source of income, and they ought to, it's a very valuable business. But Christian becomes frustrated, and he quits. He simply says, I'm walking away from this. And what does he do? He goes, creates a new business, he takes all the customers, and my family is left bankrupt, well, with respect to the business. If Christian's a majority stockholder when I die, my family is completely powerless. He they can't make any decision whatsoever. So they own an asset. Let's suppose we value the business at ten million dollars. They have a four million dollar asset on the books, but there's nothing they can do to compel a distribution of income. And so my wife doesn't have the money she needs to raise our children. So so does that explain why this is pretty important? <laughs>
1: so so if you have a partnership in any Really, any way, shape, or form, you really ought to be planning for, you, for succession. You, you need to. Absolutely. It's imperative.
3: Yep. Now, one I'm in life, And this is something that when I was a young man starting in the business, I didn't really understand. Uh, I just worked on a buy-sell agreement. In fact, the life insurance should be issued today. And we have two owners of a business in Southern Utah, very successful. The older brother... It's uh, two brothers are in partnership, 50-50 owners. The older brother has two sons working actively in the business. The second brother has a son, one one beneficiary or one heir, who doesn't even live in the area. So what they decided on is a one-way buy-sell. If the younger brother dies, the older brother is going to buy out his interest in the business so that it concentrates in the family that's still running the business but if the older brother dies (coughs) his family is going to inherit his interest and and so they will then have the ability to keep going and they have the right to buy out the younger brother over time they have life insurance so that if if he dies before the buyout is complete they can use life insurance thus everybody is treated fairly that makes
2: sense Jeremy, let me um, add another question to that, because I've heard you talk about how with most businesses, when uh, when the partnership agreement is written up, it usually includes some language around buy-sell. So in other words, there may be partners out here out there who are listening to this and don't know they have buy-sell language in their partnership agreement, but it, it actually likely is there because it was just part of the boilerplate that was used. Can you talk yeah, that, so- about that a little bit?
3: That's a really big change that's happened. So I'm, I'm the oldest one on the call. I started my life insurance career in 1978, and then I started studying in what's called the advanced markets to, to gain expertise in this area. And, and in those days, our biggest concern was that there were hundreds of thousands of businesses that did not have a buy-sell agreement. What's changed since then is uh, nearly all law firms use boilerplate documents. And as part of the boilerplate, meaning a standardized form, whenever a company incorporates, whether it's a limited liability company, a corporation, or a partnership, there's almost always language in those organizing documents that call for what's called an entity repurchase by sell. It says that if one owner dies, the company is responsible for buying out his or her interest based on a formula that's described in the document well, you started your business, everyone on this call, or most of you are are business owners. You're handed a document, you sort of look through it, and then you sign it. There's a very good chance that your business is obligated to buy out uh, you or one of the other owners if you die. So this is really now a question of funding. And do we have the very best type of buy-sell agreement? So... So yeah, it's, it's, it's very possible that everybody on the call has a buy sell agreement and isn't even aware of that. Absolutely. Interesting.
1: Okay. I think that is really good context to now kind of continue down the direction of um, not just what it is, but you know, where we go with it, what are the options, that kind of thing.
3: Right. And so we were having a conversation in advance of this uh, podcast and and I asked Christian and Rod, what are the chances of your home burning to the ground and having to be replaced? And the answer is about one in 1,700. So that's a very, very low risk. What are the chances of you getting in an accident with your car and the car having to be replaced? And the answer is somewhere over a hun- one in 100. And then you look at this and you say, If you have two owners age 30 and 35, what are the chances of one of them dying before age 65? And it's 27%. That's one in four compared to one in 1700. If you have three owners, 30, 35, and 40, you get to an astonishing 37% chance that one of those people will pass away before age 65. So, So we all own... Uh, fire insurance on our house. We all have car insurance, but how many people who own a business have insured to protect in the event that one of them dies before age 65? Um, That
1: That stat's just unbelievable. Like it's pretty staggering. I wouldn't have, I would not have guessed it was anywhere near that high.
3: Yeah. now, I think the reason that we do that is, is that a mortgage company requires us to buy casualty property and casualty insurance for our home. The state that you live in requires you to carry insurance on your car. So that becomes an automatic. Whereas this is something that, you know, when when two people start a business, they really don't go to school to learn what should we know about being in business. So let's uh, move forward with this in mind. And I'll show you what is it that surviving owners want? They want total control of the business without interference from the deceased owner's heirs. They want a prompt transfer of the deceased owner's interest at a fair price to the surviving owners to minimize distractions during the transition. So far, we, I've created sort of what appears to be an adversarial relationship. The fact is, is that when you're in business, you care about your partner's family, and they care about your family. You guys work together, you go to dinner together. So you want to take good care of the other person's family. (coughs) But in most cases, that doesn't mean that you want to be in business with them. And, and this is a really big one. This leads to something called key person insurance is you want the loyalty of surviving owners, the support of your employees, customers, and creditors. So, so that's what the surviving owners want. They want to, to have an appropriate period of mourning, but then to get on with operating the business in a way that is successful. What the deceased owner's heirs want is financial security after the loss of the deceased owner's salary and benefits. They want to have capital that can be invested to provide an income to keep them in the world that that the owner tried to create for them. They want a prompt settlement of the estate and a prompt sale of the business at an attractive price or retention of business interest by family members, depending on on where they're at in the life cycle of the business. One of the things that's really interesting, Christian and Rod, about buy-sell agreements is is in over 100 years of tax cases where a person dies with a very successful business and the family says the value of the business is this on the estate tax return, and the IRS says it's this, In other words, the IRS wants to set the value higher than what the family has so that they can collect an additional 40% of that excess. In 100% of the cases, a a valid buy-sell agreement has been held to appropriately set the fair market value of the business at death. In other words, the IRS has never prevailed. So another advantage of a buy-sell agreement that isn't in my slide presentation is that It's really a great way to set the value for it for tax planning purposes. Mm.
1: Can I just say, Jerry, when I when you were going through that, what did the deceased heirs want, and what do the um, surviving owners want? In a lot of ways, they're actually very similar, right? Like, like if you took and compared them, they all wanted to be fair and quick, and you know, provide for them, and that's kind of. At some level, it's kind of the same thing, right? Is that fair to say?
3: Well, it's very fair that that's what they want. Absolutely. But as my earlier example showed in practice, in the absence of a buy-sell agreement, they yeah, may yeah, not yeah. get what they
1: want. It makes it a mess. But like again, I guess my thought here is that as long as there is planning in place, like some basic planning, you can really make sure that both sides get what they want, which again is to... Have, be treated fairly, um, and have the ability to continue to run the business and, the, and, and or have money that provides for family. Like It, it kind of feels like as long as both sides get on the same page, like there's no reason that they can't get into a place that makes sense for everyone.
3: The, that is absolutely true, what you said. I agree with that completely. So, so should we talk about how buy-sell works?
1: Yep, let's do it.
3: So a buy-sell agreement is a legal agreement drafted by an attorney, and it creates an obligation. It requires a mandatory purchase of an owner's interest upon an owner's death or disability. So I sign that if Christian dies, I will buy out his interest for the agreed-upon price, and that now becomes a legally enforceable claim against me when Christian dies. It generally speaking, creates a restriction on the transfer of interest without the consent of the other owners during the life of the person. And um, and a slide that I left off here uh, or a bullet point is it requires the mandatory sale of the business on the part of the estate of the deceased owner. So, so if Christian dies, I have to buy and his estate has to sell. Now, you might say, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But why is that so important to stress? Suppose that the business is growing very quickly, and Christian and I have put all of our energy into it, and Christian is killed in a car accident, and and I'm supposed to buy the business out so that I can continue to grow it. But his family's a 55% owner, And i go to them and say okay christian agreed that he would sell at death so here's a check and they say you know we've decided we're not going to sell we just want to keep growing this thing and and we want to keep part of that in the absence of a mandatory clause that his family sell i am put in that earlier position as if there were no buy sell agreement which means that i'm going to be the person doing all the work to build a great deal of value for A family that isn't contributing. So so it's a two-way agreement that requires one party to sell and the other party to buy at an agreed-upon price.
1: In your example, Jerry, the other problem that comes to mind is you own now less than half of the business, right? And you're doing... you used to have a partner that shared the workload with you and now you don't have a partner So it's, it's almost like a recipe for disaster, right? Like you can kind of guess where that's going to head.
3: Or even worse, I have a partner who, who comes in and thinks that he or she knows what to do with the business and they begin issuing orders that are, are not in the best interest of the business because they're the majority stockholder. The other side of that that would be even worse. Yeah. yeah, the other side of it is, suppose that there were no mandatory uh, purchase agreement, and I'm the 55% owner, and Christian dies, and his family comes and says, you know, you're supposed to buy us out for $4 million. And I go, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. And I leave them, and as a minority owner, I don't give any cash distributions to them, and they live in poverty while owning a very valuable asset. Because mm. it turns out that I'm a jerk. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that nobody on your call is a jerk. However, (laughs) jerk is in the eye of the beholder more often than it is in the eye of the one acting that way. And so,
1: so the so the lesson is: don't be, don't get in business with someone that's a jerk. Sorry, Rob. Um, Yeah, you
3: you can't always stop that from happening, but what you can (laughs) do is you can make sure that if if that person dies or if you die that there's a, an effective transition strategy in place.
2: In, so uh, there's four in previous, ways. That uh, I,
3: go ahead. Yeah. In previous
2: uh, trainings that I've been with you, Jerry, you've also given examples of how this impacts employees. And earlier you mentioned lenders, things like that, where if, if there is not a clear plan moving forward and clear in capital and get involved with that, then your key employees, they're not going to stick around and just write it into the ground. The lenders are not going to just participate in that. So havoc ensues very quickly uh, in the ranks as well if, if there's not a clear path and, and we're not following that clear path.
3: Yes. Yeah, so I had debated whether to tell this story back when I started many, well, actually decades ago. We used to have a slide presentation that would, I don't know if you remember, they were called film strips. And so they hired actors to show what happens if you you have a person who owns a business die with a buy-sell agreement and key person life insurance, and then to act out the same scenario without it. And And here's how it sort of works. Let's suppose that we have a business that produces software. And I choose that as an example, because that's where I've probably done the most work on buy-sell agreements. And we're pushing forward. We've got a new release date coming on a new piece of software. And so we're sort of dependent on the fact that we'll either have new licensing fees as a result of that, or people will make new purchases to upgrade the software. And, And Christian is killed in this car accident. Well, we've, we've got leverage. We think the business is worth $10 million, but we've got $3 million in line of credit out because we've been building towards this software release. And, and so Christian dies. We don't have a buy-sell agreement, nor do we have key person life insurance. And so all of a sudden, Christian is the guy who had it in his head exactly how to complete the design of the software. So we call all the employees together and we say, now, listen, we're, we're going to be okay. We feel terrible what happened, but, but if you'll just stick with us, we can get this done. And somebody raises their hand and says, yeah, but Christian was a guy who knew what was happening. It'll take us months before we can get the software out." And I go, well, yeah, I know, but, but we've got a good line of credit and, and it turns out that the banker had stepped in very quietly at the back of the room. And he's going, I'm already into these guys $3 million, And if they're going to be three <laughs> months late, how much? And, and so he raises his hand and I say, yes. And he says, um, you know, we need to talk maybe before you continue. So I say to my, my employees, well, just hold on. I'll be right back. And how many of them are going to be blowing off their resumes?
2: (laughs) Every one of them. (laughs) That's not a good look. Right? Yeah.
3: And who wants to be the last one out the door? No. So the banker calls the loan, which he has a right to do if there is a death. I say, if you call the loan, you're going to force me into bankruptcy. He goes, I want to be the first one to get what's ever left. And so the business collapses. Then you replay the same story with a buy-sell agreement and with key person. So now I call the employees in the room and I say, you know, this is terrible. We feel awful, but I want you to know we're fine. And the guy raised in, he says, what do you mean fine? We're going to be three months before we can get it out. And I say, you know, we had, because he qualified for it, $3 million of key person insurance on Christian. So we have plenty of cash flow to keep all of you guys going. So no checks are going to be laid. And the banker now raises his hand, and he says, well, yeah, but you owe us $4 million. I said, you know, I intended to talk to you about that because we have life insurance, so we're just going to pay off the loan, and and we want to go debt-free. And what do you suppose the banker says at this point?
2: He says, oh, well, maybe we should up your line of credit.
3: <laughs> well, now, wait a minute, because the loan is profitable, right? That's why they made it. Yeah. And then I say, now, I know some of you are worried about what's going to happen to Christian, Christian's family, we have a buy-sell agreement in place and it's fully insured. So I will be buying them out. We're gonna concentrate ownership. Uh so, so really we are in great shape. I mean, do you just see how differently those two stories play out? Sure. And, I'm trying to picture sort of with, I mean, it's a good lead into the funding discussion, I suppose.
1: I'm trying to picture that uh like acted out, and like I guess that would have been. The seventies, Jerry, late seventies, <laughs> early eighties. Yeah, so
3: so you had sideburns. <laughs> so a lot of and
1: sideburns. really cool
2: collared shirts.
1: Yeah, uh, so maybe and bell a few buttons. buttons, not button brands button. and yellows. And, okay, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, that but here's the deal: that is a massively different conversation, and you're certainly going to feel a whole lot better knowing that you've got a bunch of cash. So. Uh, I think you did a nice job Jerry of kind of contra- comparing and contrasting what happens when you've got one versus the other. Okay. Go so ahead. let's talk now about the, the funding.
3: So, so those of you who have a buy, sell agreement, and are just realizing that you do, and I don't know if there's anybody on the call like that, but, I'm but sure I know there are people some. out there in the world who are like that because I've run across many of them. Um, Let's suppose we're going to play it out and and now I'll be in partnership with I'm going to add Rod to the partnership in a minute to show this last type of buy sell.
2: <laughs> glad so it's, glad. it's still
3: me and it's still me and Christian. Christian dies and I've got to come up with four million dollars to buy him his family out. Well, I could use savings to do that, but how many business owners have piled up, you know, 50% of the value of their business in savings? Right. And by the way, how much did they have to earn to do that? For me to have a dollar in savings, I had to earn about a dollar fifty in earnings to pay the tax, to put it in my savings account, to then start earning interest. Um, and by the way, I would be very resentful difficulty. if I had to give up a lifetime of savings to buy out Christian's family. Yeah, that would be hard. I would do it, but, but most of us don't have that. So I could sell other assets. Um, I could sell real estate. I could sell the family ranch that we worked so hard to get. But again, how much of a loss will I take selling assets to come up with a purchase price for an immediate per- payout? So th- by far and away, the most frequent and most buy-sell language that I read includes this as the default option <coughs> <coughs> says that I can borrow the money to buy Christian's family out. And normally what happens is is that the estate of the deceased person issues a note to the surviving owner. So now I have a four million dollar debt payable to Christian's estate, and I'm going to have to amortize that typically over 10 years. Well, so 10 million divided or 4 million divided by 10 is $400,000 a year that I've got to come up with plus interest, and I've got to write that check to Christian every Christian's family every single year for the next 10 years. That's usually quite a burden on a $10 million business that's producing a million dollars in assets, uh, nearly our profit, nearly half of the profit for the next 10 years is going to go to pay off this note. What's even more is if you say, well, okay, um, What what do you have to make in sales? Suppose that our profit margin on sales is 10%. To have four million dollars to pay Christian's family off, we have to make 40 million dollars of sales.
2: Hmm.
3: If we could be a big nut to crack. If we could do that, wouldn't we be doing it already? (laughs) So you can see. What, what's going to happen in this effect is we have a million of profits, so coming up with 450 or 500 is possible, except that that leaves us no money to replace Christian. Because the right. money that was going to him isn't available to go to a replacement. And so the final option is to buy life insurance on the life of the, and this is silly the way I wrote this, life insurance on the life of the deceased. The one thing that makes life insurance kind of unique is you can never buy it when you need it. Yes. You guys explain that.
2: Well, yeah, don't wait till they're deceased. I think that's what you just said.
3: (laughs) Yes, because (laughs) we won't sell it to you at that point in time. It always has to be bought in advance of the event. So, So it takes planning. In life insurance, the most you'll ever spend is 30 cents on the dollar. So if we need $4 million, and even if Christian lived to age 100 before we bought him out, the most you'd pay it, typically speaking, is about one-third of that purchase price. So the cost of using life insurance is dramatically less than any of the other options available. Any comments or questions on this?
1: Uh, Other than just kind of going back to that initial risk profile where it could be you know a 25 to 35% risk like it just seems silly when you consider the life in sh- like like you said that you're not going to spend anywhere near the amount that you're uh, that you would get back and the probability of of an event happening being so high i think i think it just feels like a no brainer that you've got to do something
3: and yet there are many people who struggle with the decision um, because essentially what you're doing is you're having to think ahead and you're having to take current consumption to pay for that. Now, for reasons that I can explain later, most people that I work with use term life insurance to fund the buy sell. So then it's literally like less than one penny per thousand of death benefit. They buy personal cash value life insurance to accumulate wealth and and the reason is, is that in most cases, businesses will make some other kind of transition with the, when the founders come to an age where they're ready to retire, either they pass it on to their children, or they sell it to an outsider. And then the need for this insured buy sell agreement goes away. So, so many times term is a good solution. We can make a really good case why you might want to use permanent life insurance. And then when you sell the business to an outsider, you take ownership of your Cash value policy that's just stuffed right up to the brim with, with cash to provide a tax-free income in retirement, but but that's a discussion for you to have with the life insurance professional, uh, including, of course, both Christian and Rod. The good
1: news, the good news is that uh, the people who we talk to generally love life insurance. They get it right. They understand the value, and you know we always preach high cash value overfunded or maximum funded life insurance to create a return inside the policy that's you know reasonable um and so it would be interesting jerry and maybe we'll have another discussion where we deep dive more into that but it would be interesting to talk more about at some point why or maybe the pros and cons of using um permanent life insurance versus term insurance inside of a buy-sell agreement
3: and and the right answer to that is there's no I mean, any decision is a good decision with respect to insuring your buy-sell agreement. Um, Some people like to build the cash value as a personal asset protected from all creditors, including business creditors. So they use the term insurance for the Mm buy-sell and they're building their wealth in a a privately held asset. I'll just tell you a couple of quick stories. Uh, Other businesses use life insurance strategically for both buy-sell and for long-term continuity. So one of my hobbies is uh, is that I write books, mostly history from World War I, World War II and the Great Depression. And one book that I wrote is called Life and Death at Hoover Dam. It's a novel that talks about the building of the Hoover Dam in, in the 1930s. And here's how this relates to our discussion the lead company that built the Hoover Dam was called Utah Construction Company. It was one of six large um, construction companies that came together in what's called the six company consortium, because it was the most, it was the largest project in human history. Hmm. Well, I was, I gave this or one of my friends at Mass Mutual purchased the book and he read it and he came and he said, so you talked about Utah construction, uh, the Wattis family. I said, yeah, it was really impressive. He said, I insured the family uh, and the business. I said, okay. He said they have used whole life insurance since the first person EO Wattis started the company and, and they have owned life insurance on the owners of the company ever since. And I said, wow, that's impressive. He said, you want to know how much they have? And I said, sure. He said, $120 of cash value in
0: that's the life amazing. insurance
3: policies that they own on family members who are owners of the company. He says they have enough money that they often take policy loans for their construction instead of construction loans because the cost of borrowing is very close to zero They put that money to work. They start a project. They transfer it to long-term financing or debt. They repay the loans. He said they have done this in every generation since the 1930s. So, so there is definitely a place for cash value life insurance, and there's all sorts of examples that we could go into of how businesses use cash value life insurance over over time, and that can be used for the the buy sell agreement if desired.
1: So that's a fun example, Jerry, because we talk to people, we, we call one of our strategies, the investment optimizer strategy, and it's basically using cash value as a loan to go, um, you know, build assets, whether it's real estate or business, et cetera. And basically what you're describing is the exact same thing, except on a business level, right? We're now using that same concept, but to grow the business. And so I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. Um, But like you said, term insurance can be every bit as valuable and important. The key here is to make sure that there is a plan in place and that it's funded so that when and if that time comes, there's something there to take care
3: of it. Exactly right. Now, I see that we've used up a lot of our time. I don't want to go too deep in this, but, but I do want to make sure that people understand the two basic types of agreements and when you would use one or the other. Is that okay? Yep, that's great. Yeah, that's
1: great. Let's do it. So you have what's
3: called a cross-purchase agreement, and then you have what's called an entity repurchase agreement. So in a cross-purchase agreement, and my cursor will hopefully be big enough you can see it, there is an agreement between two human beings. Christian Allen and Jerry Borman enter into an agreement to buy out the other partner in the event of their death. Each of these people buy a life insurance policy on the other partner. So I buy and pay for the premium and I own a policy on Christian and Christian buys and owns a policy on me. We each pay our premium to the insurance company. If I die, the insurance company sends a check to Christian. Christian writes it, he collects $4 million in my earlier example, income tax-free. He then has an agreement with my estate, so he writes a check for $4 million, and he gets the stock or the membership interest, and he's now the sole owner of the business. Most important is, is that because Christian wrote that $4 million check, that becomes new basis for him in the business that can later be taken out income tax-free if he sells the business. So, so that money... Uh, <coughs> Essentially, his capital account is increased by four million, and that's how he's going to cover the cost going forward. So this is the most tax-efficient way to do it. The option, and and this is a really kind of nice thing. It says, what are the pros of a cross-purchase agreement? Well, Christian got this <laughs> increasing basis um, in the business. And But there's, there's some cons to it. Namely, the cash values in the policy that Christian owns on me and that I own on him were not directly available to the business for what we just talked about. Cash value is part of the deceased owner's taxable estate. What that means is, is that I owned a policy on Christian, and if it had cash value, that's included in my estate. We've got to figure out how to get that policy over to Christian. And worst is, What's called the spendthrift shareholder may not pay the premiums. So Christian and I buy a policy on each other. I'm very conservative with my money, probably way too conservative. Christian is fairly free spending in my make-believe example. And Christian gets the premium notice that goes on top of the pile. He forgets about it. The policy lapses. Now, when I die, my family goes to Christian expecting a check for $4 million. He goes, I don't have it. Well, that's a problem because he's the owner of the policy and the person responsible for paying the premium. So let's look at the entity buy sell. In this case, you have a business and the agreement to buy is between each owner and the business. So the business buys and owns a policy, pays premium to the insurance company. The insurance proceeds are payable to the business at death. So when I die, the business gets a check for $4 million. It writes a check to my estate and my interest transfers into the business. If it's a C Corp or an S Corp, it becomes what's called treasury stock. If it's a limited liability company taxed as a partnership, that money simply is that interest is absorbed, and there's only one out one out one member who now owns the, the complete business. This is the standard agreement that's included in all of the organizing documents that are boilerplate. So this is the most common, but what's the disadvantage? Well, there's a lot of pros as you can see. (coughs) First of all, we only have to buy one policy per shareholder, younger owners, we can equalize the premium business can use the cash value. There's no concern for spendthrift owners not paying their premiums because the the business's bookkeeper is taking care of that. But if this is a C corporation, when the business writes that check for $4 million, Christian's basis is not affected because he didn't write the check, the business did. The money comes back into treasury and Christian's basis is unchanged so that if he later sells a business, he will owe capital gains on that $4 million that was used to buy me out. Well, that's a pretty big con, offset by the fact that most businesses, particularly many of the people I think you're working with, aren't C-Corps, but it's awkward. So let's look at what else there might be. And, and this is, we can create to manage complexity what's called a partnership by sell agreement to handle multiple owners and multiple entities. So let me give you an example to explain what i'm talking about and i'll go back here um we're going to bring rod into our partnership Right. so now it's rod christian and jerry if we did a true cross purchase agreement what would have to happen is i would have to buy a policy on rod and i'd have to buy a policy on christian because i don't know which one of them are going to die rod would have to buy a policy on christian and jerry And Christian would have to buy a policy on Rod and um, Jerry. That's six policies for three owners. If we bring in a fourth owner, the number now becomes 12 policies that have to be purchased. Because I've got to buy a policy on each one of my partners. Well, that's very awkward, isn't it? In fact, it's almost unmanageable. Um, And so... What we can do to get around that is to create a partnership. I didn't, I don't have a graph for this. I apologize for that. So let me talk through this. So in a partnership, or LLC taxed as a partnership, you can use special allocations to facilitate a multi-owner buy-sell. Premiums for a specific owner are charged to the capital accounts of the other owners. So let's suppose we have four owners, and it, the combined cost of buying Owner number one out of the three businesses that we own together is is $4 million. We buy one $4 million policy in this partnership, and we charge the cost of that on a prorated basis to the other three owners. When partner number one dies, the money comes into this limited liability company, $4 million, income tax-free, and it gets assigned to the capital accounts of the three owners who paid the premium. They now are able to take cash out of the partnership, write a check to the estate of the deceased person. They are purchasing their proportional share of each of the businesses that are involved in the buy-sell agreement. And so we've now got one policy, one agreement for many owners and potentially the five or six companies that most businesses now own together because you have an operating company, You have a different company to own the real estate. You may have a third company to own the intellectual property if it's a a software company. You may have a fourth company to buy the trucks and all of the operating equipment that is then leased to the company. That's the way the modern world works, is there are many entities for a single enterprise, and this type of agreement can handle all of that. And so I call it a cross-purchase with life insurance partnership and you'll see that it checks all of the boxes for getting the most possible benefits. This is an area that the more and more law firms are becoming familiar with. I will say that the, one of the things that we can do is supply sample agreements, Christian and Rod can, to uh, your law firm so that they they have the benefit of this kind of planning. But this is an area where we have real expertise. Okay, yeah, so that, to- was, that was Go a lot here. more questions.
1: No, these are great. This is great. So what I hear you saying, and I'm just, I'm, I'm a simple person, Jerry, you, you know, this by now, um, Rod's more Rod takes care of like the complex stuff, but my simple brain is telling me that traditionally there's been cross-purchase and entity purchase agreements. There's some pros and cons to both in response to that. We've got a third option that's better that can basically eliminate the majority or all of those those negatives and makes it easier. I mean, that's, that's really what it is.
3: Everything you said is true. I will say it this way. If you have a two person company, then a cross purchase agreement checks the boxes and that's okay. the easiest to implement. If you have more than two owners, or if you have more than two business entities that they own, then you're going to want to take a look at this, Cross-purchase agreement with a life insurance partnership because it checks all the boxes.
1: So Jerry, and this may be like outside of what we, what you traditionally get into, but let's just say theoretically, maybe what are you seeing, or what have you seen, if it's a medical group with sixty partners? What kind, what kind of plan? What do they normally do, and to to plan for succession? Is it generally? Um, well, anyway, what's your thought on that?
3: Yeah, so so the last slide that I prepared is professional limited liability companies or corporations. So when I started in the business back in 1978, everybody sort of used the, the format that we've used so far and it still works for any kind of a company that produces a product. But when you come to professional companies, where it's the personal service of a doctor, the personal service of an attorney, the personal service of an architect that is creating value, what I have noticed is a real shift in the way that they they manage this. So give me just a minute to go through these, because this is what I encounter most often. Many professional corporations now assign a fixed value to a partnership interest such as a $50,000 or $100,000, which becomes the fixed price for a buy-sell agreement. So the largest law firm in the state of Utah, uh, I'm friends with many of the attorneys, particularly in the estate planning department and the qualified plans benefit. And I was talking with them and they said, here's how I used the word Christian and Rod. It used to be that a young person would come into a, into a prestigious law firm And they'd work very hard. And once they started getting a high enough income, whoever founded the firm, the equity partner would retire and he would sell his interest to the young guys. And so they would now take on debt to buy this person out. And that's how he paid for his retirement was by selling his equity interest, maybe for a million, maybe for 10 million. What began to happen is is that all the partners aged out at the same time The young guys were saddled with an enormous amount of debt, and they were sort of living in poverty with the hope that someday they'd be the equity partner and the next generation would have to buy them out. Well, what began to happen is is that the next generation said, we're just going to go start our own law firm. We're not going to take on this that, yeah, you've got a good name, you've got a lot of clients, but we can move and set up shop and all the people that we work with may choose to follow us. So what this firm did, and CPA firms that I'm aware of, is they went to a different model where they say a membership interest is worth $50,000, or it's worth $100,000. Each equity partner then receives a full share of profits each year and is expected to invest that to fund their own retirement. And the ways that most of them do that is with tax-qualified plans, including 401k, target benefit um, pension plans, or what are called 412E3 plans. A restricted property trust that uses whole life insurance that is sponsored by the entity gives a 70% tax write-off, but all the income that comes from that in retirement is income (coughs) tax-free. A lot of these places will, will have the operating company, the law firm or the CPA firm, but then they'll set up a separate company to buy a building where they operate, and I'm an equity owner of that, and I can be bought out of that as part of a buy-sell agreement. Or, um, and this is at the deep end of the pool for, for companies with a lot of cash flow, you can create what's called a captive reinsurance company to provide liability protection to the parent. That's a way to get an income tax deduction at the uh, at the operating company level. It goes into a re, uh, a reinsurance company, a captive reinsurance company, where that premium is exposed for a year. If a claim is made, it pays the claim. If there's anything left, it becomes surplus that can be distributed as a capital gain. So for very uh, high marginal tax bracket owners, you can take something that would normally be taxed as ordinary income and convert it into capital gains. So the idea of this is you'd use the very same type of buy-sell agreement that we've been talking about, but it would be for a fixed, purchase price and then you would work with Rod and Christian to develop other strategies to build your own wealth for retirement and for your family legacy.
1: So oh. if if i'm hearing that right then it's it's basically it sounds like some of what you're seeing and you, you kind of gave this example in the you know in the legal space but but really personal service space instead of doing all of these kind of um, I, I don't know if convoluted is the right word, but complex planning. It's you know the the simpler, more straightforward way to get there might just be to say okay, instead of instead of you know a portion of profits going to you know buy out the the equity partner, rather than doing that, everybody is going to get full profits into their pocket as they earn the money, and each person's responsible. So now you've got to go and make sure that you create the money. Uh, rather than relying on the, but, but there's benefit, right? So you're not relying on the, um, uh, kind of firm structure, but you're also taking in like probably a higher portion of profits than you would if you were doing it the other way.
3: I think you said that very well. So really when you sell a company like, a, a medical practice or, or a CPA firm, you're selling goodwill and customer relationships. What this says is, goodwill only goes so far. It only lasts so long. So we're going to set a price for that, but we're going to make that a fixed price. So in, in your initial question, you said, what would you do with a, a medical group that has 50 doctors who are co-owners? What you could do is you could create a, you would probably create an entity, because they're most likely taxed as an S Corp, You'd either set up an entity repurchase buy-sell agreement or a life insurance partnership where every doctor is insured for whatever the fixed price is, $100,000. So there'll be a life insurance policy to buy out their equity interest if they die. But but you're not trying to say, well, the value of this practice altogether is, is $10 million divided by 50. And that means we have to buy each person out for their proportional share. It's just a very different way of thinking about it, Mm. recognizing that the only real assets are, and remember, the real estate would be outside of this, but it's just the equipment, it's the goodwill, and, and you're making it simpler. Now, it isn't the only way you can do it, but I'm just saying this is what I've seen with nearly every large law firm, CPA firm, medical group that I work with, they have gone to this model for personal service type companies.
1: Yeah, it does make sense. It's a lot more simplistic. So, so Rod and I were having a conversation kind of beforehand before we jumped on this. And and basically he made the point that you, <coughs> if you've been assuming that it's going to be one way, that that's just the way it's done, you may want to reconsider and just make sure that you're planning appropriately, which in my mind really just means that you're you're not taking the approach of relying on the sell of the business rather you're saying all right i'm going to save i'm going to focus on saving and building wealth outside of the business while additionally and hopefully building it inside the business and then you know you can hopefully i mean you might be able to sell to an equity group or whatever but but you might not and I, i think that's kind of the issue
3: well yeah and that's something that we didn't even talk about um you know, a lot of practices grow and then an equity group comes in and becomes the owner and and then the doctors become employees. In that case, um, in that case, it's strictly up to the doctors. They get their share of the initial sale. But from that point forward, they're employees and responsible for building their own wealth. So.
1: Yeah. yeah, And and even there, you don't know that that's going to happen. Right. So like that opportunity may or may not come. Right. If you have a multi-location practice, like there's a higher probability, but if you're a solo or, you know, in a partnership, you know, it may not be large enough for an, for a private equity group to fill that. So again, um, you know, looking at the different options that are available and making plans so that, you know, you can go with whatever makes sense in the moment. Right. So you're not trapped or, or kind of pushed into one direction.
3: So in, in my practice, um, I I don't ever I'm not a lawyer so I don't ever draft agreements but but I always collaborate with the attorney to share the thinking that we have and and cuz I know more about life insurance law than most attorneys do simply because that's my specialty it becomes very collaborative working with the client the attorney the CPA uh to try to get to the very best solution possible and, and I think that's what you guys do in your practice in helping yep. your clients. So.
1: Okay. This Absolutely. has been fun. This has been a good discussion. Uh, Rod, is there anything you wanted to cover that we didn't?
2: I think we've hit on the stuff I was thinking about. So I think we're good.
1: Okay. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on. I'm certain that we'll have you back. Um, we appreciate everything you do for us. And the good news is, if you're interested or intrigued by any of the things that we've been talking about, um, you don't have to rely exclusively on Rod and I, we absolutely have Jerry there to back us up. So uh, we do have specialty and expertise in this area through Jerry. So Jerry, thanks so much for being on and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.
3: All right. See you later.
0: Thank you for listening to the money insights podcast to learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in the show. Please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.